Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund. On today's show, we're going to be talking about the farmer labor movement. In Minnesota, we have the Democratic Farmer Labor Party, the DFL. All of the other states are simply the Democratic Party. This is because of the farmer labor movement. The farmer labor movement was the most successful third party in the United States political history. At its height in the 1920s and 1930s, farmer farmer labor party members included three Minnesota governors, four U.S. state senators, eight U.S. representatives, and a majority in the Minnesota legislature. This progressive movement elected candidates and advanced political change in Minnesota from 1917 until it merged with the Democrats in 1944 to form the DFL, the Democratic Farmer Labor party. So the Farmer Labor Education um, Committee produced a documentary on this really interesting history. So let's give a listen to this uh, trailer on this documentary. We must find a way by which every member of society can share in the benefits of industrial progress and wealth and employ the government to work together for the common good. There are very few farmers now who are in the position to start their sons or daughters off with a farm. What a tragedy. Haven't we enough common, ordinary horse sense to set about building a better social system than this? People need jobs, equality, education. The least powerful person in the country, understanding collective bargaining, can become the most powerful. And that is what politics is all about. Farmers and laborers, rural and urban working people, saw their dreams for a better life slipping through their fingers. They reached out and joined hands with neighbors and coworkers, forming social and political ties to create the farmer labor movement. But we have a glowing dream of how fair the world will seem when everyone can live their lives secure and free. Secure and free. Common horse sense. We need farmers who can afford farmland. Duh. Um, so joining us now is three members of the Farmer Labor, Labor Education Committee. I'm just give you guys a chance. You can start with uh, with uh, Randy. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself and and how you got involved in this project. Hi, I was working as a video producer at the Labor Education Service at the University of Minnesota, and back in 2014, Tom O'Connell who've been studying the movement for decades, came to me and said that uh, he and the Farmer Labor Education Committee wanted to create a documentary to spread the word, to let more people in Minnesota know about this largely forgotten history. So um, so we in our department, including Howard Kling and Barb Kuchera, and myself started working on it with him and We've been working on it uh, until we finished it last year. And so, Anna, how about yourself? Yeah, um, my name is Anna Kurhajic, and I teach history at the Doherty Family College at the University of uh, University of St. Thomas. <laughs> and um, I got involved in this project uh, through um, uh, through the Labor Education Service. And um, for me, I study social movements, and particularly, I'm really interested in how social movements form and how social movements end um, and how kind of radical politics interacts with with other kinds of politics. And so the 
intersection of the labor movement um, with the kind of farmer labor movement was really, really appealing to me. So I got involved um, through that. And Tom O'Connell? Yeah, um, well, I got involved um, back in the 70s initially. Um, I was uh, one of those student activists who um, believed in the uh, old slogan, never trust anybody over 30. And then I became 30, and I realized that wasn't a very convenient slogan anymore. But more seriously, not having a, a political tradition for a lot of us who were active in the, in the 60s and 70s, uh, an American-based, much less Minnesota-based tradition, uh, and having to look to third world countries and other places for models was was really sad and not a very effective way to communicate um, with folks. So I was thrilled to learn about the farmer labor uh, movement. I, uh, I never knew what the FL stood for in the DFL, and it was a re- revelation uh, to me. And so we actually formed an association, uh, Farmer Labor Association, to um, bring that history um, to people around Minnesota back in the, I guess it was late, late 70s. Yeah, so one of our national talk show host, Tom Hartman, has a series of books called The Hidden History. Um, is the Farmer Labor Party the hidden history of Minnesota politics? Would you guys agree with that? Is this something that's just not well known? Yeah, I think it's uh, kind of hidden in plain sight because we do have a DFL. And so um, uh, I just thought, like uh, I think many of us, that every Democratic party around the country was called the DFL and then found out, no, it's just just Minnesota. So there's kind of an invitation, um, kind of a question mark right there in the title of, 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 the, uh, of, of, of the political party. Uh, I, I think for many years it was a history that was driven underground uh, because of anti-communism in the 1950s. Uh, the Democratic, uh, when, the, when the, the Democrats and farmer laborites merged in 1944, the farmer laborites were a much larger party. Um, but eventually there was a party struggle and the Hubert Humphrey group, which uh, was the famous group, took over power. Now, the, the, the farmer labor movement was incredibly progressive. So just give some highlights of what they what was the what were the planks or the platforms of the farmer labor movement? You, either you guys want to take that? Anna? Well, well, you maybe even know more of those details, but they did have a platform that was passed in uh, it was 34, wasn't it? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Called the Cooperative Commonwealth. And it. It advocated um, the cooperative ownership of larger industries like uh, energy and and um, it also um, had planks to protect the land uh, after the fires of uh, the late what 1918 and so forth. People became really aware that we needed to protect uh, the land as as well as people. And so they actually had a conservation plank in it, um, more equitable distribution of income. Why don't the rest of you add to it? Well, 34, the Cooperative Commonwealth uh, platform was the most radical of the platforms. But basically, it included an all farmer labor, right? included uh, kind of a, a vision of, a, of an economy which did include private enterprise, but in which monopolies would be, um, would be owned by. by government in some form or by workers, uh, which small business would get a better shake and which the family farm or small farms would be, be protected. 
and cooperatives would be encouraged, which of course Minnesota has a great tradition of. So it's kind of a it was kind of a soft socialism uh, that came out of a real um, tradition of, of cooperation uh, in both the labor and farm movements in this part of the country. Yeah, and I think one of the kind of fundamental parts, it's in the name, right? Farmer labor hmm. movement, farmer labor party. Um, one of the most exciting things about it is that it's a party where farmers and workers who often are seen as pitted against each other um, in terms of fighting for resources, fighting for access to state support. Here we have this third party that comes to power in which farmers and workers are joining forces. And it's just, it's a really powerful story. And that's a really powerful basis of what, what the party is. Good point. So and also um, it was really a, a bottom up movement in that it wasn't just a party. There was the association which was made up of clubs from all over the state. And it was a year round organization where people met and talked about the issues and then elected candidates based on those issues. And those candidates were really held to account to act and pass legislation and policies based on those cooperative commonwealth issues. So. Um, and so there also was the opportunity for helping one another. So for instance, when there was a timber workers strike, um, farmers helped them. And the farmers also saw the strikers helping them because they had been cheated when they were sold bad land on cut over timber areas that was very acidic and hard to farm. So they saw similar interests and they really could cooperate on a local basis and then that percolated up to statewide policies like farm foreclosure moratoriums. I think Randy makes an important point that um, the farmer labor movement was um, really a different model um, uh, for the United States in that it, it combined year-round organizing and uh, uh, membership in an association which included unions and farm organizations and and clubs uh, in the urban areas uh, and connected the uh, party um, in the election year to the actual on, on year-round organizing and education. So it's a really powerful model of combined politics and education and organizing. And um, so and I should say that this movie is free and available and we can watch it on the computer. Um, um, so tell us a little bit about um, the website to go to and uh, what you, what the type of information you have on that website, Anna. Yeah. So the website is, um, you guys correct me if I get this wrong, but it's farmer labor education committee dot org. Oh, it's just farmer. It I actually, farmer oh. labor education.com. Oh. Yeah. There you go. See, I was the wrong person to ask. Um, FarmerLaborEducation.com. Um, and yeah, it's available there. And there's a, a bunch of other resources there to check out about the farmer labor movement and the history. Yeah, we hope to build up, um, build out that website to include all sorts of stuff. But primarily now it is um, a timeline in, in, in the film itself, but it's available and free you know, just by going online. Yeah, and it also has the trailer, and it also has a lot of uh, resources and timelines of the history of the of the movement. So, it's a lot of valuable information that, if your interest is piqued by the video, you can look there to dig deeper. 
Because this show was three hours to begin with. We had to cut cut it down. It's <laughs> complex history. It is complex. So this happened 100 years ago. Why should? Why does it matter today? Well, I think uh, a couple things. I mean, one is I think there's a value in, in understanding that um, those of us today and um, stand on a history. And I, and I found that really um, inspiring to know that uh, these struggles that we continue to have for, for social justice, um, there's a legacy to it. Uh, there, there's folks that have been doing that. And for people like myself who grew up in the 1960s, we were cut off from that. We didn't have mentors and models, largely because of anti-communism, uh, the, the McCarthy movement and that sort of thing. And that group of folks who advocated for a cooperative commonwealth uh, or more democratic socialist policies, um, we never heard about that. Uh, that was all kind of blanked out and intentionally so. So I think for me and I think for others, it, it could be a source of inspiration uh, that, that uh, maybe even folks in our family going back generations um, were, were part of the struggle. You're How about gonna- you guys? Yeah, we're going to take a break a little soon and we come back and talk some more about this. But I'm going to um, share my personal connection is I'm a truck driver's daughter. Um, my dad drove two, mile, two million miles and we had six kids in the house. We had full dental care. We had um, health care. We had a four bedroom house. We got two vacations every year. We had a pension um, when my mom had six kids. so I won't say she wasn't working, but. But a lot of that that I grew up with, a lot of that privilege I grew up with was because of the Minneapolis truck driver strike in 1934. It was the activities of the 20s and the 30s that helped create the middle class. And then then we saw it go back, right? We saw it go back. And right now, there's too many people who don't even think buying a home and owning a home is even possible for them. They think that it's just normal to have to work two jobs a week. That's not normal, and it doesn't have to be normal. We can have an economic and a world that works for all, and it's funner. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio, and we're talking about farmer labor education. ...in the benefits of industrial progress and wealth, and employ the government to work... I grew up in Duluth, up in the hills, a community we call Little Jerusalem. There was an enormous amount of anti-Semitism, The first time they called me a sheeny, they made me a communist. Discrimination came not only from neighborhood kids. Irene's revered third grade teacher told her class that undesirables from other countries were a blight on America. From that time on, I never accepted authority unless I tested it in the crucible of my own experience. Well... It was only one short step there from being conscious of my oppression as a Jew, as a girl, to being conscious of the oppression of blacks. Right after World War I, three blacks were hanged from a pole in Duluth on First Street because they were accused of raping a woman in the circus. That made a tremendous impact on me. Irene became an organizer and writer, supporting farmer labor ideals. She was not alone in her outrage over the social order. Voters took major steps toward reversing corporate dominance of Minnesota politics. 
So that is a clip from the movie, um, and it's available for free. Anyone can watch it. Um, you can go to Farmer Labor Education. And that, that clip was so moving. And um, I'm just going to – we're talking with three members of the of the Farmer Labor Education Movement, uh, Randy um, Krocha, Anna um, Karcher, uh Kershawhawk, uh, I said it right before us, and Tom O'Connell. I'm sorry about that. But so one thing that was living in that comment was just the sense of feeling of solidarity with each other and sort of belonging to each other and forming genuine community bonds. Anna, is that important in social movements to have that sense of community? Absolutely. I mean, I think... Um, I think when people build movements, that's what it's all about, is people coming together over a shared sense of struggle, shared issues, um, shared points of opposition. And I think um, what happened in this case is that a lot of people came together and a lot of people were able to, to get political power in a way that's really unusual because of the way they came together, because of the kind of solidarity that they saw with one another and the way that the movement um, built from there. So, um, absolutely. Yeah. And, um, so Tom O'Connor, they actually became very powerful, this movement. They, mm-hmm. they impacted a lot of what we're experiencing today in society and, and their, their lives. Yeah, they were very, um, very successful, um, politically, uh, as well as, uh, culturally and socially. I mean, they elected two governors, uh, from 1930 to 1938. They, uh, had majorities in excuse me, in the state legislature, elected senators and representatives uh, nationally. They never got control of the, of the, of the Senate. And that has to do with the way our elect, election system are staggered. So who knows what could have happened if they actually had the Minnesota House, the Minnesota Senate, and the governorship all at one time. So some of the, some of the programs never got implemented. But I think the important thing is not only the electoral success and, and the legislative success, but just... Um, kind of what Anna was referring to, just uh, tens of thousands of people who experience real kind of uh, solidarity at, at the local level, uh, built relationships. And um, some of those relationships lasted um, a lifetime, like Irene Paul, for example, from that clip. Um, she was still active right until, um, you know, her uh, passing, um, you know, many years later, I had a chance to interview her. Uh, and so there was, particularly the more active and militant ones, uh, that, that was their life. Uh, and and they, they lived that till the end. And let's talk about um, the Farmers Union and the Farmers Holiday Association. So give us a brief history of that. <laughs> well, I'll start. Uh, and then, yeah, I'll start. The Far- Farmers Union had been around um, for a while. I don't know exactly how long. And it was, uh, you know, a progressive liberal organization, but an offshoot of that was a farm holiday movement. And um, that actually was a more direct action um, organization that directly uh, protested and, and, and uh, tried to stop farm foreclosures from happening when the sheriff would come over and the auctioneer to auction off land. They would, uh, the neighbors would get together and, and keep that And that was a really emotional part of the movie because when the neighbors got together, they actually um, they 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 didn't bid on the farmland; they stood (laughs) in solidarity. So, um, someone want to share that story? Randy, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, yeah, and actually, I was fortunate enough to talk to um, a nephew of 
John Bush, who was the president of the Farm Holiday Association in Minnesota, Roland Bush. And um, they had what were called penny auctions. So you'd have maybe a thousand neighbors, sometimes more, would show up and they would prevent some of the people who might actually want to get their hands on a farm or equipment for cheap. Um, and they sort of pushed them aside, I have to say, but there was never any real violence. And they would bid uh, five cents for a cow, 10 cents for a tractor. And then at the end of the auction, which was a legal auction and was binding on the bank or whoever the creditor was, they would give everything back to the farmer so they could continue farming. And this happened to such an extent, uh, especially in uh, Western Minnesota, that uh, the banks just gave up trying to hold these auctions and, and started negotiating directly with the farmers and with uh, supporters in the Farm Holiday Association. So it was pretty remarkable. And there is one instance that we show in the film in Montevideo where there's a federal auction or a of land and uh, 7,000 people from all over Minnesota and the Dakotas showed up at that auction and prevented it from happening. That's just amazing. That makes me, um, it makes me almost tear up in some ways. Anna, mm -hmm. talk more about that, that type of, um, I mean, and even in the music that you played in, in, in this film is really good because it's just sort of this living, belonging to each other and, caring about each other yeah absolutely and i think i mean there's so many different instances of this in the farmer labor movement history of people just coming together and really coming together um in some in some experiences like with with the farmers you know coming together and, and knowing what it was like to have somebody um you know your neighbor really struggling and so people would come out and really support them in the penny auctions but then we have instances of people who um, you know, as we said before, are really kind of seen as not natural allies who do come out and support each other. And so we have farmers bringing food to striking workers and we have, um, you know, farmers joining as the, you know, as Randy mentioned, the timber workers. We have um, workers joining forces with unemployed workers during the Great Depression mm -hmm. to form units of solidarity. Um, across just kind of these different um, positionalities. And I think that piece of it is is one of the most inspiring parts of this story, this this kind of hidden story, right? When we start to talk about it, we think, why don't we know this? Because this is really amazing, you know? Yeah, and so um, I, I, why we don't know. Now, um, I like even I had to double check. Okay, Highway 55's Olson Memorial Highway, that is named after Floyd B. Olson. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Tom, maybe you want to pop in. Who was Floyd B. Olson? What kind of policies did he have? And um, tell, well, talk a little was, bit about him. He was uh, uh, a very popular and uh, it's an overused word, but charismatic um, um, political leader of the farmer labor movement. He, he was elected governor in 1930 to 1936 and was running for the U.S. Senate and would have been elected, but he died tragically of cancers as a very young man. Um, so oftentimes in social movements, you need really good grassroots organizing uh, year round in the farmer labor movement through its, its clubs and associations through its unions and the farm organizations uh, had that. Um, but it's also important 
maybe not necessary, but important to have good political leadership. And Floyd Olson represented that. Uh, and so the the uh, highway is named after him because he was a very uh, popular, beloved, really, uh, political leader, perhaps the most beloved in Minnesota history. And he also was from North Minneapolis. So, you know, kind of went through his old neighborhood, I suppose. Yeah, over 200,000 people filed by his coffin, which lay in state in the Minnesota State Capitol, to give you some idea. And the photograph that we use um, on the website as the sort of the thumbnail for the documentary is, are some of the faces of the people who were waiting in line to mm. view his body. And you can see there's a range of people from little kids to old people and all different ethnicities and everything. He, he was really popular. And the movie features his voice and some of his clips. So one of the things he said is, I'm not a liberal, I'm a radical. Yeah. And what did he mean by that? Well, um, he, he was leading a, a party that was radical. And I think in the, that was an acknowledgement. Um, Floyd Olson was that combination of pragmatic political leader, charismatic speaker. Uh, and I think he moved in sync with, with, with times and, and with, with the Farmer Labor Party. So genuinely, I think his sentiments were radical. His instincts were pragmatic. And in 1934, he could come out and say, I'm a radical, knowing that he would have not only the support of the party, but a lot of Minnesotans at that point. Because it was a radical time. People were losing their jobs, their land. Um, the farmer labor platform said capitalism has failed. That seems like a radical statement, but not then. <laughs> I mean, you just look around you. There's something really wrong here. So um, he 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 did uh, he kind of did uh, mean that, uh, both from a pragmatic point of view, and I think his instincts. He was very much a a person who was uh, had a feel for the common person at the time. So Anna, Anna, any comments on uh, Floyd B. Olson? What do you think that, what would you hope that people would know about him? Um, I mean, I think, I think right there, the just, you know, think about that context for a second. We have the governor of the state of Minnesota saying publicly, I am not a liberal, I am a radical, um, saying that in, you know, into the world, like that's part of our state history. That's part of the history that we have this highway named after that people drive on every day, right? And I think, Earlier, when you asked about the legacy of this and why this matters for us today, that's a huge part of it. We have this third party. You know, we I think people often feel stuck in the, you know, Democrat or Republican. We have this two party system. Um, we have these divides, rural and urban, and we're supposed to be against against one another. We're supposed to, you know, just there's there's gridlock. Nothing gets done. And here we have this history where the dominant party in in our nation in our state for for decades um, was was a third party that was really pushing radical politics, was pushing to to get help for poor people, for working people. And so, um, I mean, that legacy is just uh, I mean, it's 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 something we should be really proud of, and it's a and it's a, I think a message to us today that. We could do that again. You know, we don't have to be stuck in this same kind of gridlock. That there, there are paths for building something that works better for everyone. And I think what Tom said about Olson being a pragmatist is important too, because 
not only did they have a radical vision, but they actually were able to carry a lot of it out, even with, as Tom said, never having a majority in the Minnesota State Senate, which meant that he had to compromise. He had to listen to other viewpoints besides farm labor right viewpoints. And the 1934 truck strike that you talked about earlier, Laura, I mean, um, past governors would have simply sent out the National Guard to, to quell it. Well, he didn't do that, but he also felt a certain need to balance things out. So he had um, the state militia close both the Citizens Alliance, the right wing group that was um, opposed to unionization, as well as the strikers headquarters. And a lot of them um, ended up being interred at the state fairgrounds for a while. So he was giving the appearance of being even-handed so that he wouldn't give ammunition to, you know, more right-wing forces. So, so we're going we're gonna to take a break. We're coming back. We're talking about FarmerLaborEducation.com. Um, and uh, this you can watch the full documentary by simply going to FarmerLaborEducation.com. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950. While much of the country was spinning in confusion, Minnesota's farmer labor movement was ready to respond quickly to the crisis of the Depression with an organization, a program, and tested leadership. In 1930, voters elected a substantial farmer labor delegation to the State House of Representatives, and they made the charismatic Floyd B. Olson governor. The Farmer Labor Party does not wish to confiscate the property of anyone. What we want is to create an economic system so that we can produce enough wealth to satisfy the needs of all the people. We want every man, woman, and child in the United States to have enough to eat. We want every man, woman, and child to have a decent home to live in and decent clothing to wear. What had appeared radical in the 1920s seemed like... So that's such a simple sentiment, enough to eat, a nice home, our clothes, our needs met, a kind of a resource-based economy, and that we're all in this together. We all do better when we all do better. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Headline, and we're talking about farmer labor, labor education. Um, and um, uh, again, so the the um, let's let's go around once again and just reflect a little bit on on why this movie was made and why it's important to remember this. And you can start by saying your name first. Randy, you want to start? Sure. I'm Randy Crochet. I was a video producer at the Labor Education Service, which worked with the union movement. Um, and I got involved in this um, because I felt that the story wasn't being told. And in fact, we did do interviews at the fair uh, several years ago, and we talked to 20 people. And uh, big share of them didn't even know what FL stood for in the farmer labor, Democratic farmer labor DFL name. And um, only one or two knew that the farmer labor party was an independent progressive party that existed before they merged with the Democrats. Anna? Yeah, uh, my name is Anna Kurhadjik and um, yeah, I was drawn, I'm a historian uh, and I study social movements. And so I was drawn to this project because um, this is all about a social movement really um, building into a political party and bringing together people from across all different walks of life. And 
um, and kind of doing something that that wasn't being done in other places. And, and um, I think there's a lot of lessons and um, a lot of uh, a lot of just great moments that that are part of Minnesota history that we um, that we've forgotten about or that we don't recognize. And I like one of the taglines you use is exploring the past, creating the future. And somehow knowing this history helps us create the future. I think so. Yeah, I, Absolutely. I, I think so. Um, the United States has a reputation. I don't know if it's fully um, deserved for, for not really uh, spending a lot of time with its past, but always looking, you know, looking ahead or looking to the present and uh, seeming that, how could that be relevant? You know, uh, I'm just going to focus on today. And I think um, the past is really important um, and um, not having a past, particularly as uh, someone who's trying to uh, be active and maybe even make some changes, not having a tradition, not having role models, so to speak, um, is, is really injurious. So knowing this history, uh, I think can be very uh, important. And I, I want to make sure we mention, we talked about the truck driver strike in Minnesota in 1934, but there's also the Hormel strike. Um, who wants to pop in on the Hormel strike and what happened and what does it, what did, what, what was the, the results? Well, I can do it. That, that preceded that. That was in 1933 mm-hmm. in Austin, Minnesota. And um, the Hormels were... Mm. sort of benign dictators <laughs> there. I mean, and um, what really precipitated the strike was that they were asking all employees to contribute to the community test to help the poor people. And as Peter Ratcliffe reports the story, some of the people said, well, we are the poor people. <laughs> Why should we be giving to this, I mean, we should be making enough money so we could afford to make a donation. And um, it, it started a sit-down strike in one part of the plant, spread to the whole plant. And it was the, at least the first major sit-down strike in the United States. And um, Olson was asked to send troops in. And instead, he went down and visited and saw that it was completely peaceful. And um, after just a few days, they negotiated a really... Amazing contract that that um, said people couldn't be laid off for 52 weeks, and they got a a considerable raise and much better working conditions. And so that um, was an example that spread throughout Minnesota and actually Iowa uh, and Nebraska too. um, Through what it wasn't just a, a narrow focus either. Uh, it was the international, what was the name of that? The Independent Union of All Workers. All work. So yeah. they started also organizing restaurants and um, other um, factories and so forth. And it spread like wildfire. Yeah. And so I think Randy brings out the, the um, difference between a way of farmer labor administration related to a labor struggle and what had usually happened before then. Um, mm-hmm. that if government intervened, it was usually uh, in the name of uh, keeping order, but it had the effect of uh, crushing strikes. And this was like a real turnaround in, in that approach. 
Yeah, so uh, Floyd B. Olson, if, if he if he wasn't governor, um, the army may have come in and um, or not the the, the um, not the army, but you know National what I think Guard. the Marsh, yeah. the National Guard may have come in and the whole labor movement could have been squashed. But there's this partnership between government working for the people and people working for themselves that sort of builds up and this ground up that created um, this progressive movement with a living legacy. Would you agree that it's a living legacy? The farmer labor movement. Anna, you want to take that? <laughs> I, th- I mean, I think, you know, we, 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 we can see moments where we say, gee, you know, th- it's, it is really different today than it was the, you know, that, that kind of tradition of farmer labor um, m- maybe wasn't as prominent in some of the ways that the, the democratic farmer labor movement developed after the merger. Um, but you know, I think one of the things that we try to talk about in the documentary is that so much of what the farmer labor party and farmer ma- labor movement stood for in terms of, um, you know, supporting the rights of everyday people, bringing people together, building sort of organizing um, all year round, working on environmental justice, working on, um, you know, government aid for unemployed people, working on um, rights for farmers, all of these things uh, have continued, right? And they may not continue in mainstream party politics in the same way, but we have such a strong lab- uh, legacy of people building movements and fighting for those things. Um, and so that, you know, I think that that lives on today, certainly. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's really well said. I sometimes wonder if there is a, is there uh, something like uh, in the DNA of Minnesota uh, or in the political culture that it may not be visible, um, but is a cum- cumulative impact of history. You know, I think we Americans tend to think that history is something that happened before and we're always looking ahead to the future. Um, so even if this is just a thought, and I know it's really true. So even if uh, a person may not know farmer labor history, uh, somehow growing up in Minnesota has been impacted for many people by that history over time and that it's the job of the current generation to sort of bring that history out so people can relate to it more uh, consciously and, uh, um, you know, effectively. I mean, and some examples are, I think that that grassroots participatory spirit lives on in Minnesota having the higher, highest uh, percentage of voters in the country. We still have the highest number of co-ops of any state in the country, as we did during those times too. And I think just some of the ideas that percolate through, even in both major parties now, I think just um, even the caucus system, there are a lot of things that aren't uh, attributed to the farmer labor movement, which were, if not invented by them, I mean, the farmer laborites didn't invent co-ops, but they certainly (laughs) strengthened them. And, And they didn't invent caring for the land, but they established the Department of Conservation and and uh, founded 23 state parks during farmer administration, farmer labor administrations and so forth. So it set a groundwork and sort of what's okay, what's acceptable, what's comfortable. Um, and I think there's more of a public spirit in this state than a lot of other states. Yeah. While it may have waned since the 30s, I think it still exists. Yeah. 
And so um, uh, I think uh, we only have about um, three three minutes left. So I want to briefly kind of finish the story. What happened to the Farmer Labor Party? Well, um, in in 1938, after eight, eight years of success at the governor's office, there was uh, a couple things happened. Number one, the Republicans, which had been very conservative uh, in Minnesota, uh, basically got the message they're going to have to sort of uh, wake up a little bit. And they nominated a guy named Harold Stassen, um, who ran as a moderate and uh, basically said, hey, uh, we'll accept some of these you know, proposals and reforms, but you're not going to have to go through all the social conflict and class conflict that was, was happening and that um, they said was uh, caused by the farmer labor movement and its allies. So I think like a lot of reform movements, some of it was uh, taken over uh, by, by the opposition. Then there were real splits, and there's not time to go into it, within the, uh, within the movement and within the parties, which also often happens with social movements, and uh, including a big dose of anti-communism and struggles both within and without the parties. So it's internal splits plus a, a kind of more effective opposition. And then World War II uh, and the end of the Great Depression and the basis of farmer labor politics um, eroded as well. Okay, well, um, uh, you're listening to Food Freedom Radio. Let's go around um, once again, and I'm just going to any other thoughts. And uh, again, people can watch the full movie and learn about it. But let's just go around um, again. We we can start with Randy and say a little bit your name and any other last thoughts you might want. Sure, Randy Croce. And when I look at the current scene, sometimes I get disheartened. But I think about what happened just before the farmer labor rights really took off, um, and you had a time when opposition um, party people and labor activists were tarred and feathered. Um, and that was literally, I always thought that was a joke. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't realize, no, that, but no, they were literally happened. tarred and feathered. Yes, for, for being against World War One and also just for being labor activists and, quote, reds. Um, and you had newspaper editors jailed. Um, and as a reaction to that, you had the ascendancy of the farmer labor movement, which offered a much more progressive alternative. You know, um, under that administration, you, you even had um, Germans and Swedes and their um, loyalties questioned and everything. So if we could bounce back from that into the, the kind of party and movement we describe, it, it gives me a sense of optimism. And we're down to our last minute. So Anna and Tom, you want to hop in quickly? Yeah, um, I'm Anna Kurhajek, and you know, I I just think this uh, we didn't get a chance to talk very much about how so many other divides were also bridged in this movement, and so women, for example, played a huge role in the farmer labor movement, mm. and really both politically and holding office, but then also just in terms of the organizing year round. Um, and so this was a really important um, movement for women, you know, across the street. Uh, across the state, and then um, bridging divides among ethnic groups, right? Within Minnesota, you know, a very white space in general, but ethnic divides were such a huge division among people that the farmer labor movement brought those people together as well. Bringing people together, bringing people together for the better of all. That's the progressive spirit, the participatory uh, spirit. So farmerlaboreducation.com, farmerlaboreducation.com. This has been Food Freedom Radio.